interviews with Jerry Driver, Clinton County Juvenile. Uh, I went to the sheriff's office and along with Detective Don Murray questioned Mr. Eccles. At that time, Mr. Eccles uh, said to both of us that he was involved in the occult, but not in the devil work, as uh, he said he was great week. And that he had a group of people that, uh, that participated in this with him. And that his main participant was a, a boy named Jason Baldwin. He also informed me that time that Jason would never ever give him up with love. During this same interview, uh, Mr. Eccles uh, was asked uh, what the extent of, of the cult activity in Trenton County and what this area was. And uh, he told us that it was fairly extensive, that there were three or four groups in West Memphis itself that were further uh, further along in their activities than what you may or may have been out of camp. And by that, uh, he said that he had uh, they had, had reached the end of their animal sacrifice uh, portion uh, to receive power, and that the next logical step would be the sacrifice of you. Uh, and we asked him if he knew who it was going to be, and, and he denied that he knew who it was. Uh, he did say that he knew who the, who the people were involved in was to one of the names. He said that uh, one of the calls in particular was uh, waiting uh, for the return to Clinton County of, uh, I believe the number was seven individuals who had been involved in it before here, uh, and they were out of town and were coming back uh, in the summer of 92 to participate in, in the sacrifice. had his first run-in with the law on May 19th of 1992, just shy of one year before the murders of Michael, Stevie, and Christopher. Damien, born Michael Hutchison, was dating a girl named Deanna Holcomb at the time. He was 17 years old and Deanna was 15. Deanna's parents did not approve of her dating Damien, and in fact forbade her from doing so. In response to this, on the afternoon of May 19th, Damien and Deanna, both teenagers, decided to run away together. Since neither one of them owned a car or even had a driver's license, their options were limited, and they didn't make it very far. The two love-struck teens found a vacant, abandoned, single-wide trailer in the Lakeshore Estates trailer park. They entered through an unlocked door and settled into their newfound freedom. Inside the trailer, the teenagers began to do what teenagers do, until they were rudely interrupted by a Marion Police Department, Officer Stone. Deanna's parents had called the police and reported her as a runaway. The young couple had obviously not taken many precautions to avoid detection because it didn't take Officer Stone long at all to find them. Stone entered the trailer and found the couple in a state of undress. Both Damien and Deanna were arrested. That moment the moment Officer Stone transported them out of the trailer, changed Damien Eccles' life forever. 
Today's episode is sponsored in part by eHarmony. If you're trying online dating, chances are you've run into lazy text messages, dead-end conversations, and random matches that don't turn into dates. You can't get to know somebody just by looking at their picture. Now, I have personally checked out eHarmony's site, of course not as a client as I'm happily married, but just to see how the process works, and it's really, really impressive the depth that eHarmony goes into to truly figure out who you are and what you might be looking for in a mate. eHarmony is unlike many other dating sites. They take steps that other sites don't in order to find you a more compatible match. They're built to help you find lasting, meaningful relationships. They're not a shallow hookup site. And right now, my listeners can get a free month with eHarmony when they sign up for a three-month subscription. All you have to do is enter my code JUSTICE at checkout. Stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying, meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have that meaningful relationship, there's one app that's built to bring you real love, and that's eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Go to eHarmony.com and get started. Just enter my code JUSTICE at checkout. After the arrest of Damien Eccles and Deanna Holcomb, John Murray filled out the following arrest report for Damien Eccles. Now pay close attention to the details of the narrative that I'm about to read. It may seem insignificant now, but in later episodes we'll be coming back to this arrest. From the report, this defendant was arrested after a report from the co-defendant's mother was received by Marion Police Department reference a runaway. Officer Stone of the Marion Police Department located these defendants inside the closet area of a vacant mobile home in Lakeshore Estates and observed that both subjects were partially nude from the waist down. Officer Stone transported both subjects to the Lakeshore Grocery and the undersigned was contacted. Upon arriving on the scene, the undersigned charged both subjects with burglary and sexual misconduct. Both subjects were transported to the county jail, where juvenile intake officer Jerry Driver was contacted. As we move forward through the story of the investigation into Damien Eccles, there is something that you need to consider. There are people on both sides of this, for lack of a better term, argument. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be dredging through a lot of reports generated by law enforcement officers. On one side of the fence, there are people who believe that if it was written by a cop, then it must be true. Others don't trust the police at all, and most of us fall somewhere in between. My personal view on this, and I want to put this out there right up front. I have spent the better part of my adult life working side by side with law enforcement. In my experiences, I've realized something. Police officers are actually human beings just like the rest of us. There are all types of people in our country wearing a badge. There are smart cops and dumb cops, tall cops, short cops, fat cops and skinny cops. Some are kind and some are not and some are honest while others will lie for any number of reasons. In this case, to truly understand how Damien Eccles was arrested and convicted for these murders, you're going to have to decide some things. Now, I can't make these decisions for you, nor can I form your opinions. In this episode, for example, I will present to you how the law enforcement officers say things went down in the first two days following the murders. And then you're going to hear directly from Damien Eccles to give his side of the story. And spoiler alert, there are going to be some differences. 
The day Damien and Deanna were arrested, Damien's life changed in two distinct ways. For starters, his relationship with Deanna ended for good on that day. Her parents made sure of that. Losing Deanna destroyed Damien and sent him spiraling into a deep and dark depression. We'll get into more details on this in later episodes, but I'll note for now that following this breakup, Damien in fact found himself in two different psychiatric hospitals. The second way that this experience changed Damien's life is found in the last sentence of that report. Quote, Both subjects were transported to the county jail where juvenile intake officer Jerry Driver was contacted. On May 19, 1992, Damien met Jerry Driver, who would become his juvenile probation officer. To put it subtly, Driver was very much interested in Damien's life and beliefs from that point forward. And this is the reason that all of you had to suffer through Dale Griffith's testimony last week. I needed for you to have a full picture of what Dale Griffiths believes about Satanism and the occult from his own mouth before I told you that he was in fact assisting juvenile probation officer Jerry Driver investigate Damien Eccles for nearly a year before the murders occurred. Now, that's not to say that that means Damien is innocent or guilty. It's just simply a fact. The question that keeps being asked of me is how did Damien become a suspect to begin with? And the answer is Dale Griffiths and Jerry Driver. Prior to his testimony in front of the jury, Dale Griffiths was put up for voir dire in front of the judge to establish his expertise. Here's defense attorney Paul Ford questioning Griffiths from the transcript. Okay, tell me who you have talked to in this case. Who, where have you gained your information in this case? Griffiths, uh, from Detective Ridge. Ford, from Ridge? Griffiths, yes. Ford, okay. Griffiths, uh, the prosecutor. Ford, which, which one? Griffiths, the one, uh, Mr. Fogelman. Ford, Mr. Fogelman, all right, who else? Griffiths. And uh, approximately uh, a year ago, I was called uh, by a uh, gentleman by the name of Jerry Driver, I believe. Ford, Jerry Driver? Griffiths, yes. Ford, he called you about a year ago? Griffiths, yes, sir. Ford, okay, how many times did you talk to Jerry Driver? Griffiths, probably about five or six. Five or six times? And when was the last time you talked to him? Griffiths, shortly after this case took place. Shortly after May of 93? Yes. So you have already been contacted by Jerry Driver even before these homicides occurred? Griffiths, that's right. Ford, okay, so was the last time you talked to Jerry Driver in the month of May of 93? Griffiths, yes. Here we have Griffiths acknowledging on the stand that Jerry Driver had called him to consult on satanic and occult activities five or six times before the murders ever occurred. Then, in an interview that Dale Griffiths did recently on The Ed Operman Show, he went into further detail to explain what exactly he was consulting with Driver about. In the interview, he said that he was in fact not just consulting about Satanism and occult activity, but was actually consulting with Jerry Driver about Damien Eccles specifically. 
So for a year before these murders occurred, Jerry Driver clearly believed that Damien was into Satanism or the occult in one way or another. And in fact, he was so concerned with these types of activities that he contacted Dale Griffiths, a consultant on the subject from Ohio. Let me say that one more time and let that sink in for a minute. Jerry Driver was consulting with a satanic cult expert who testified at the trial to convict Damien Eccles about Damien Eccles for a year before the crime ever occurred. Jerry Driver had gotten caught up hook, line, and sinker into the satanic panic of the times. According to his assistant, Steve Jones, he and Driver would actually drive around on full moon nights in an attempt to stop child sacrifices in West Memphis and Marion. He was convinced that dark forces were at work in the area and it was only a matter of time before the local cult moved on from animal sacrifices to human sacrifices. Allegedly, Driver had a lunar calendar in his office that he used to track the cult movements and activities in the area. But despite all these efforts, according to Jones in an interview with the author of the book The Blood of Innocence, they never actually found any evidence of satanic cult activity. In an interview that Driver gave to Detective Bill Durham in December of 93, gives us both an idea of how the investigation landed on Eccles, as well as where Jerry Driver's mind was at the time. This interview took place between Damien's arrest and the trial. As I read some of this to you, pay attention to the questions that Jerry says that he asked Damien. I'll warn you up front that Eccles and Driver have two very different versions of these stories, so you'll have to make up your own mind about who you believe is telling the truth. However, we do have Driver in his own words recounting the questions that he was asking. From the transcript. This is Detective Bill Durham of the CID offices of the West Memphis Police. The day of the week is Friday. The date is December 3rd, 1993. The time is 3.45 p.m. This interview is with Jerry Driver, Crittenden Juvenile Officer. Mr. Driver, I understand you had dealings with one Damien Eccles in approximately sometime in the month of May of 92. From Driver. Yes, that is correct. On about the 29th of May, um, 1992, I received a call from the Crittenden County Sheriff's Office that Mr. Eccles had been arrested along with Diana Holcomb in a trailer down in Lakeshore Trailer Park. He um, was charged with burglary, let's see, sexual misconduct. I went to the Sheriff's Office and along with Detective John Murray um, questioned Mr. Eccles. At the time, Mr. Eccles um, said to both of us that um, he was involved in the occult but not uh, not as a devil worshiper as such. He said he was a gray witch and that he had a group of people that uh, participated in this with him and that his main um, participant was a boy named Jason Baldwin, who also lived at Lakeshore. And he also informed me that at the time, Jason would never, ever give him up and that he loved him. Um, during the same interview, Mr. Eccles was asked, um, what was the extent of the cult activities in Crittenden County and the West Memphis area was, and he told us that it was very extensive, that there was three or four groups in West Memphis itself. They were further uh, along in their activities than he may or may not have been by that. Uh, he said that he meant uh, that they had reached the end of their animal sacrifice uh, portion uh, to receive power and uh, the next logical step would be the sacrifice of a human. And we asked him if he knew it was going to be, and he denied that he knew who it was. Uh, he did say that he knew who the people were involved in the cults, but he didn't want to give names. 
He said that uh, one of the cults particular was uh, waiting uh, for return of Crittenden County um, of, I believe the number was seven individuals who had been involved before here and they were out of town and were looking to come back. And they were coming back in summer of 92 to participate in a sacrifice uh, shortly after that. We did have, I think, about seven kids show up down at West Memphis PD who all had the earmarks of it with the tattoos and the devil rings and the other. But it turns out they probably weren't the same ones. Now, again, this interview with Damien occurred just shy of a year before the murders. As you heard, Jerry Driver was obsessed with the occult. Now, it's important to point out that this is Driver's retelling of the interview with Eccles after he was arrested and the state was preparing for trial. Unfortunately, we don't have any recordings or notes of this interview in evidence. Driver did testify at trial. However, nothing regarding this interview was ever presented. Before these murders ever occurred, Jerry Driver was focused on Damien Eccles. And right or wrong, after the murders, Driver was convinced that Damien was responsible for them. So much so that some have accused him of, to put it nicely, getting creative with his evidence. As an example, here's an excerpt again from Driver's December 1993 interview. Quote, Before he returned home was, I got a call that he was in the emergency room of a hospital out in Oregon and that he had threatened to eat his father and then showed up on my doorstep again. End quote. Now, a little backstory here. According to the official records, Damian Eccles was detained in the Craighead County Juvenile Detention Center after his arrest with Deanna Holcomb. While he was there, he expressed a plan for suicide. He had threatened to hang himself with bedsheets. He was then sent to Charter Hospital in Little Rock for intervention. Damian stayed there for a little over three weeks. After he left the hospital, he moved to Oregon with his family. As I said earlier, since the arrest with Deanna back in May, Eccles was severely depressed. On September 1st, 1992, the police were called to Damien's house in Oregon. Now, try to track this. Driver told Detective Durham in his interview that Damien was committed because he threatened to eat his parents. The police report from the Washington County Department of Public Safety says that Damien was suicidal. His parents had called the police. The report says that they found no evidence that Damien was actually planning to kill himself other than a statement from his sister Michelle who said that she had asked him if he was thinking about suicide, and he responded yes. She went on to say that she asked him when he would do it, and he responded, soon. Damien denied being suicidal to the officer, but the officer's notes say that he was able to convince Damien to let his parents take him to St. Vincent's Hospital to be seen by their staff. The report ends, quote, Michael and his parents got into their car and cleared the scene. No further action taken. End quote. So a couple things here. Number one, I briefly mentioned earlier that Damien Eccles was born Michael Hutchison. You'll notice that his name on the report is Michael. He had, in fact, already changed his name at this point, but it appears that his family had still not accepted the new name. So here's the backstory. In his early teens, Damien was adopted by his stepfather, Jack Eccles. At that time, he was studying the Catholic religion and was planning to convert to Catholicism. When Michael went to change his last name to Eccles due to the adoption he decided to also change his first name to Damien. Damien is a saint known to the Catholics as someone who worked with lepers and later died of the disease himself. Now, in this report in 1992, Damien is in Oregon with his birth father, Joe Hutchison. 
hence his name written on the report as Michael Hutchison and not Damien Eccles. I'm sure his father wasn't thrilled about the name change. Now let's get back to our hospital stay. In the police report, the officer only cites his reason for being called is that Michael, Damien, was suicidal. There is not one mention of any threats, no mention of any violence, and the report ends with Damien voluntarily getting into the car with his family and for them to drive him to the hospital. Now, back to Jerry Driver. Driver's version of this is that he was committed for threatening to eat his parents. Now, there's obviously a discrepancy here, but the problem gets worse as we move along. Damien volunteered to go to St. Vincent's Hospital. At some point, Driver gets on the phone with Damien's dad. Driver then calls the hospital and tells them that Damien's dad told him that Damien threatened to slit his throat and eat him. Then, this becomes part of Damien's intake record at the hospital, although Joe Hutchison, Damien's father, denies this ever happened or that he said it to Driver. So, did you follow that? Damien's psych records, which are all over the internet and have been used against him for years in this case, say that he threatened to eat his parents. It's in there, that's what it says. Now, who knows, maybe that's true. But it is a fact that the source of that note in his intake records is in fact none other than Jerry Driver. The police officer that responded to the scene makes no mention of any sort of violence. Damien's parents make no mention of any violence to the hospital when they check Damien in. A juvenile probation officer from West Memphis, Arkansas called the hospital in Oregon and gave them this information. This is just one example of how committed Jerry Driver was to keeping tabs on Damien. Damien stayed in the hospital in Oregon for two days, and in October, he moved back to Arkansas. And that is what Jerry Driver meant when he said in that quote that he landed back at his doorstep. Now, Driver did end up testifying at Damien's trial, but his testimony was limited to simply connecting all three defendants together with each other and to the occult. Could you state your name and occupation for the jury? Jerry Driver. I'm the chief juvenile officer in Crittenden County. And, Mr. Driver, in your, uh, <clears throat> since you've been in Crittenden County, uh, are you acquainted uh, with uh, Damien Eccles? Yes, I am. Are you also acquainted with Jason Baldwin? Yes, sir. And Jesse Miss Kelly? Yes, sir. Now, I want you to direct your attention to November the 15th, 1992. Um, did you have an occasion on that time to be in Lakeshore Trailer Park? Yes, I did. All right. And what were the circumstances, general circumstances, under which you were there? I was out there on a normal uh, drive-through and uh, happened to stop uh, with a, a car that we suspected of having a drunk driver. While we were out at that car, we saw uh, three gentlemen walk by. All right. Who who were they? Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. And how were they dressed? In black with long coats. And uh, did they have anything in their hands? Long sticks or staffs. Now, is the person you've referred to as Jason Baldwin, is he in the courtroom? Yes, sir. Where is he? Right over there in the green shirt. May the record reflect the witnesses identified the defendant? May so reflect. And uh, the person you've referred to as Damien Eccles, is he in the courtroom? Yes, sir. They're in the white shirt. May the record reflect the witnesses identified the defendant? May so reflect. 
Now, subsequent to that date, uh, did you see the uh, the three of these people together on other occasions? I've seen them on several occasions. And do you know approximately how many times that you saw them between November the 15th and um, June the 3rd? Approximately. Maybe two or three times. Okay. And do uh, you know where these where you saw them? Uh, twice, I think, at, uh, at Walmart and once out in the trailer park. And uh, were they all three together, or just two, or just one, or how were they? Well, the, for about three times I saw three of them together, and then several more times than that I've seen two of them together. Okay. And when you saw the two of them together, who was that? Damien and Jason. And how were they dressed? Generally in black. I don't have any further questions. Mr. Driver, I've got on a black suit. Is there anything wrong with wearing a black suit? No, sir. Judge has got on a black robe. Anything wrong with wearing a black robe? No, sir. Anything wrong with three people together wearing black? No, sir. Okay. Did you see Mr. Eccles on May 5th, 1993? I don't recall. That's all. I don't hear you. What we've demonstrated so far, I believe without question, is that Jerry Driver was focused on Damien Eccles long before these murders ever occurred. Now, that doesn't mean that he was necessarily wrong, but there is no denying the fact that he believed that Damien was involved in a satanic cult. And there is also no denying that his consultations with Dale Griffiths led him to believe that Damien would progress to the point of human sacrifice, again, before the murders occurred. And this idea is further demonstrated as we shift our focus onto the man that I refer to as the invisible man in this case, Jerry Driver's assistant, Steve Jones. Months ago, we talked about the fact that it would appear that all the police officers in this case lied at trial when they testified that it was Mike Allen who first discovered the shoe floating in the water which led to the discovery of the boys' bodies. For some reason, Steve Jones has been left out of all of the police reports and was never called to testify at trial. To this date, I can't begin to explain why that is. The fact is that it was not Mike Allen who discovered the shoe. It was none other than Jerry Driver's assistant, Steve Jones. The mystery here is why Jones was involved in the search in the first place. Jones worked in Marion and was not called to the scene for the search. He had entered the woods where the bodies were found alone on May 6, and he's the one who discovered the shoe and called for the other searchers to come to the area. It was then that Mike Allen entered the water and discovered the bodies. The question that we are attempting to answer today is simple. How did Damien Eccles become a suspect in this case to begin with? And the answer, along with Jerry Driver and Dale Griffiths, is in fact Steve Jones. This is an excerpt from the book, The Blood of Innocence. It comes from pages 92 to 93. Quote, Police suspicions about Damien actually had started the moment the boys' bodies were discovered in the ditch. It began with the numbness that had overcome juvenile officer Steve Jones as he watched Detective Brian Ridge pull the bodies from the ditch. 
Jones's horror was more than just a reaction to the grisly scene. His fears had come true. He would tell others, Damien Eccles, that dark, moody teenager from Lakeshore, had finally killed somebody. Now, this quote has been spread around the internet for decades. Although, to be fair, I have never been able to source where the information came from. It could be just a rumor, but nonetheless, Jones clearly did suspect Damien from the moment the boys' bodies were found. The following is a police report written by Detective James Sudbury. Quote, On the day after the bodies of the three boys were found, I had a conversation with Steve Jones, a juvenile officer for Crittenden County, Arkansas. In our conversation, I found that Steve and I shared the same opinion that the murders appeared to have overtones of cult sacrifice. During our conversation, Steve mentioned that of all the people known by him to be involved in cult-type activities, one person stood out in his mind that in his opinion was capable of being involved in this type of crime. That person was Damien Eccles. Steve stated that Damien lived at 2706 South Grove and Broadway Trailer Park in West Memphis, Arkansas. On this day, the day after the bodies were found, I asked Steve if he would meet me at Damien's residence in order to interview Damien. In fact, the day after the bodies were discovered, I went to 2706 South Grove and met with Steve Jones, whereas we talked to Pamela and Eddie Hutchison, the mother and stepfather of Damien. Neither Pamela or Eddie objected to our talking to Damien. On this day, with Pamela and Eddie's permission, we talked to Damien in his bedroom. And on this day, I took a Polaroid of Damien Eccles. At this time, I observed Damien to have a tattoo on his chest of a five-pointed star or pentagram, and as best I remember, one other tattoo on his shoulder or arm. I am unsure of the nature of this tattoo. Signed, Lieutenant James Sudbury. Less than 24 hours after the bodies were found, Sudbury and Jones are at Damien's house interviewing him. Why? At this point, there's no cause of death. No time of death. Nothing. The police knew nothing. They are now beginning the process of interviewing family and going door-to-door for leads. And this is what I meant last week when I said that the investigation into Eccles was happening behind the scenes of the investigation that we've been discussing over the last month or so. At this point, the only lead that the police have is the mysterious bleeding man at Bojangles. Meanwhile, Steve Jones, the Invisible Man, is conducting his own investigation along with Sudbury. Now, as we move along, I want to point out that none of what I'm about to tell you is proof of innocence or guilt. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What it is proof of is the fact that we have two options here moving forward. Since Damien was absolutely targeted within hours of the discovery of the bodies, before there was a single shred of evidence pointed to him, either Jerry Driver and Steve Jones were lucky enough to have pulled a needle out of a haystack and to pinpoint one man out of a population of nearly 30,000 people and get it exactly right before they have a single piece of evidence pointing towards him, or Damien Eccles was railroaded from the moment these boys' bodies were pulled out of the water. Referring back to Sudbury's report, he says that he took a Polaroid picture of Damien during this interview on May 7th. This picture, which is up on our website, is a simple headshot from the chest up. Damien is wearing a basketball t-shirt. The team name Blazers is visible. Sudbury claims that he viewed a pentagram tattoo on Damien's chest, yet he took no photos of it. 
I'm personally curious about how that conversation even developed. I need you to take your shirt off. Why? What does he say here? I want to check you for injuries, which actually would have been a reasonable request. He's holding a Polaroid camera, and the entire reason he's there is that he believes that Damien killed the boys due to a satanic ritual, and yet he claims to have seen a pentagram tattoo on his chest, but he doesn't take a photo of it. Interestingly enough, shortly after this, Damien's mother did take photos of shirtless Damien in their backyard. And lo and behold, there are no tattoos on his chest at all. None. Two days after this interview, Officer Shane Griffin and Detective Bill Durham take a questionnaire that says it was created by Sudbury and track down Damien again. Now, remember that we have parallel investigations happening at this point. The West Memphis PD at large is now canvassing the neighborhood, going door-to-door for leads. Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell was quoted in the newspaper saying that he did not have enough information yet to identify any suspects. He even went as far as to say that while they aren't ruling anything out yet, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of satanic ritual on the scene. Again, at this point, the autopsy reports aren't completed, the police have no cause of death, or any details whatsoever about the boys' bodies other than what was visibly seen at the crime scene. They knew that the boys were nude, bound, there were cuts on their faces, and that Chris Byer's genitals were removed. That's all that was known by police at this point. They did seem to believe that the boys were raped, given the news reports that stated the boys were, quote, choked, raped, and sexually mutilated. Shane Griffin and Bill Durham found Damien on May 9th hanging out with his girlfriend, Dominique Tier at his friend Jason Baldwin's house. The officers asked if Damien and Jason would be willing to answer some routine questions. Both teenagers agreed. As a sidebar, we've been asking for weeks why the West Memphis Police Department didn't canvas more of the neighborhood where the boys lived, and I believe that this is part of your answer. While that canvassing is being done... Two of West Memphis Police Department officers are out in Marion questioning two teenagers that are only suspects at this point because Jerry Driver and Steve Jones said they were. You have to at least wonder if maybe they might have reached more of the neighborhood if all of their resources were put in the neighborhood. These are the questions and answers in the interview. Griffin started with Damien. Do you know the boys? No. What should happen to someone who did something like this? Should they have a second chance? Death penalty. Why would someone do this? Thrill kill. Who do you think did this and why? Don't know. Could it have been an accident? No. Did you or do you know who did this? No. Polygraph. Do you think a polygraph is accurate? Not accurate. Would you take a polygraph? No. How do you think they died? Cut up. Do you believe in God or the devil? God, no. Devil, no. How do you think it would feel to kill or watch someone die? Scary. Scared. Where were you on Wednesday 5-5 between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m.? With parents. How does being questioned make you feel? Doesn't bother me. How do you think the person who did this feels? They liked it. Happy. Are you a hunter, fisher, or camper? No. What type of vehicle do you have? None. Do you own a gun? No. Do you own a hunting knife or any type of knife? No. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to kill someone, even if you didn't go through with it? Yes. Are you familiar with Turtle Hill? No. Are you familiar with Robin Hood Hills? 
Yes. Have you ever been sexually or mentally abused? No. Sister abused by stepfather. Didn't bother him. Do you at present have a relationship? Yes. Are your parents alive? Yes. Are you on medication? Medical doctor, mental patient, manic depression, impramine, therapist Sherry Dawkins, psychiatrist Dr. Irby. Have you ever experimented with controlled substances? Breathed gasoline. Do you believe in white or black magic? No and no. Do you have or own a Bible? When younger. Why would your fingerprint be at the scene? No. So to be clear, it was Shane Griffin asking these questions of Damien, and it was Shane writing the answers. So Damien didn't write these answers. That's what Shane Griffin wrote down when Damien was answering to him. After Damien, he moved on to Jason Baldwin. Do you know the boys? No. What should happen to someone who did something like this? Should they have a second chance? Death penalty. Why would someone do this? Don't know. Who do you think did this and why? Don't know. Could it have been an accident? No. Do you or do you know who did this? No. Polygraph. Do you think a polygraph is accurate? Doesn't know. Would you take a polygraph? It looks like the answer is no there, but it's hard to read. How do you think they died? Don't know. Do you believe in God and the devil? Yes. How do you think it would feel to kill or watch someone die? Disgusted. Where were you Wednesday 5-5 between 6 and 10 p.m.? 6.30 till home, it says. What type of vehicle do you have? None. Do you own a gun? No. Do you own a hunting knife or any type of knife? No. Are you a hunter, fish, camping? Fish. Are you familiar with Turtle Hill? No. Are you familiar with Robin Hood Hills? No. Have you ever been sexually or mentally abused? No. Do you at present have a relationship? Yes. Are your parents alive? Yes. Are you on any medication? No. Have you ever experimented with controlled substances? No. And Jason's interview stopped abruptly there. He didn't finish the questionnaire because his mother came home and was not happy about the police harassing her son. This is the report filled out by Bill Durham after they finished questioning Damien and Jason. On May 9, 1993, Shane Griffin and I talked with Damien Eccles, Dominique Tier, and Jason Baldwin at 5 p.m. in the front yard of Jason Baldwin's house. They said that on Wednesday, 5-5, that they had gone to Jason's uncle's house and Jason had cut the lawn. Unsure of times they went or address. It is somewhere off Dover behind Blockbuster Video. Damien phoned his father to pick them up at the laundromat at Missouri and North Worthington. They said they were picked up at 6 p.m. and Damien's father took Jason and Dominique home and Damien went home. Shane Griffin at this time started asking the questions on the sheet and did complete the sheet on Damien. He was asking Jason the questions when Jason Baldwin's mother arrived. We were standing in the front yard at Jason Baldwin's house trailer. Mrs. Baldwin was very upset and accused us of picking on her son and said she did not want us talking to him. I attempted to reason with her, but to no avail. We then left. Shane Griffin also wrote a report, and evidently this was not the first time that he spoke with Damien on May 9th. His report reads, Interviewed Damien Eccles at 3.40 and 5 p.m. And then Griffin draws a cross with a circle on top of it on the report, and continues, And faded pentagram on chest. Stated he has GED and gets disability check. Has been in Charter of Little Rock Mental Hospital, diagnosed as manic depressant and schizophrenic, and takes impramine for manic depression has a therapist named Sherry Dockett and a psychiatrist named Dr. Irby. Doesn't believe in God or the devil. Used to be involved in the Wiccan religion, Covenant of Divine Light, which practices white witchcraft. 
Father stated that on 5-5, he was home at 6 p.m. through the rest of the night. Stated that he thought the homicides were a, quote, thrill kill. Stated that sister was sexually abused several months back by the stepfather, but that didn't bother him. Has a girlfriend named Dominique Tier, who is four months pregnant with his child. Was arrested sometime last year in Marion for burglary. Have Polaroid picture of him. So this is where the investigation began. At this point, it has been three days since the bodies had been found. Damien has been interviewed several times already, and now his friend Jason Baldwin is involved in the investigation. Now, Jason himself had had some minor trouble with the law a couple of years earlier, and his probation officer was Steve Jones. We have a long way to go into the investigation that led to the arrest and later convictions of the, quote, West Memphis Three. But for today, we were simply just trying to answer the question as to how Damien Eccles became a suspect to begin with. I believe that we have effectively answered that question. But before we close out today's episode, as promised, I called Damien and asked him to give us his side of the story. Damien, can you talk to us from your perspective how you came to be involved in this case at the very early onset of the investigation? Honestly, I think uh, for the most part, I think as soon as these murders happened, I don't think they focused on anybody except me. For You know, uh, there was a, one of the cops was a guy named Steve Jones. Well, I say he was one of the cops. Technically, he did not work for the West Memphis Police Department. Uh, it's never even been explained, you know, why he's at the crime scene, why he's involved in this this case or anything else, because he was actually like a, uh, a he was associated with the juvenile like probation system in uh, Marion, which is the next town over from West Memphis. He had nothing to do with the West Memphis Police Department whatsoever, yet he was with them. With He's the person who said uh, as soon as they pulled the bodies out of the water. He said the first words out of his mouth was, Damien finally did it. He went and killed someone. So the second they find the bodies, my name is the first name that this guy is throwing up in the air, even though he's not even an actual West Memphis Police Department member. Uh, Within, I'm not sure exactly how many hours it was, uh, but it was still relatively early. Um, I was just getting up and turning on the TV, starting my day. So I would say it would have been somewhere around before noon. And this was the the day after they found the body. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, I was watching it on the news. I had just enough time pretty much to eat a bowl of cereal before Steve Jones uh, and someone else from the Westminster Police Department, a guy by the name of Sudbury, uh, were both banging on my door. You know, it was it was within hours um, Mm -hmm. of the time that they found the murder. So immediately I was involved in this case from the second that they even realized a crime had been committed. I was the one that they were focusing on. Okay. Now when they came in, did they, they interview you or what, what happened when they came to your house? What'd they do? Uh, they didn't want to talk in front of my family. They did not want my family to hear anything they were saying. So they, they asked, would it be okay if they uh, took me into the bedroom? So I'm figuring at this point, you know, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know they're trying to set me up or anything else. So I'm just saying, sure, you know, I got nothing to hide. Let's go in the bedroom. So we go in the bedroom and Steve Jones, first thing, he, well, no, first thing he does is starts, you know, he's saying, you know, surely you've seen all this on the news. You know what's going on now. And, and we're just trying to get your help. We want you to help us, to give us, you know, 
help us try to figure out what the person who did this was thinking about, why they did this. If you know any information, you know, you're out here on the street, maybe you hear something, somebody says something, maybe you've seen something, you know, any little thing you can come up with that'll help us in any way whatsoever. So I was like, sure. Next thing I know, Jones is telling me all these crazy ass stories that, as far as I know, have have no foundation to anything that was ever brought up in court. But for example, he started saying to me things like, uh, "There were now that I'm familiar with how you know interrogations work, I see that he was feeding me information is what he was doing." For for example, he would say, um, "Well, why do you think the bodies were in the water I, mm-hmm. to hide them? I mean, I, that's why most people throw bodies in water to hide them, I guess." And he goes, well, do you think it could have been, instead of hiding them, do you think it could have been because the person who did this maybe pissed in their mouths and was pushing them in the water to try to clean it out? Which has always been kind of strange to me because no one ever brought any. Keep in mind, this is within hours of the time the bodies have been found. There's no DNA testing being done, uh, nothing like that to indicate that anything like that would have even potentially happened. This is something coming entirely from Steve Jones out of his own head. Yeah, they didn't even have the the cause of death yet at that point. Exactly. Exactly. You know, in hindsight, there's a lot of things you don't catch when it's going on just because number 1 it's a horrific situation. Uh number 2 you don't have all the details because you haven't, you know, been through trial, you haven't seen all the evidence, you haven't seen what the other cops are saying any of that. But when you look at it in hindsight, that was one of the things that always struck me about the luminol testing. Because from what I'd heard was luminal shows up for other things besides blood. You know, like they were telling me, I believe I heard back then somebody was saying it could have been even something like raccoon urine or something like that would show up. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, well, maybe that's what the luminal testing was. Maybe Jones knows a little something that he's not being completely and entirely forthcoming with and that that's what the luminal testing was. But, you know, once again, this is all hindsight stuff. I've had. You know, what is it now, 25 years to think about this stuff? Right. At the time, it didn't even cross my mind. I thought, you know, I am I was 18, still practically a kid. So I'm thinking, you know, these are adults. They know what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. And I thought, you know, things like crooked cops were a really rare thing. You know, like that's something that that's why they base TV shows on them, because it's not something that happens all the time. I didn't realize what they were doing. At the time that they were doing it, I didn't know they were feeding me this weird information in hopes that I would parrot it back to them, uh, which is which is what they would do. You know, for example, whenever they would ask me a question, they would say, well, do you think maybe the person did this because of this? Uh, maybe. Well, whenever we got to court, that's not the way they said it. Whenever we would go to court, they would say, well, Damien told us he thinks the killer did this because of this. I'm like, no, that's not what happened at all. You asked me, did I think that could be a possibility? I said, maybe. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's that's all it was. But that's not the way it was portrayed in court. That day that he was there, how long did mm-hmm. they spend at your house? I would say, you know, once again, keep in mind, um, I can't say with complete and absolute certainty because it was 20, 25 years ago. But I would say between 30 minutes and an hour. Okay. And during that time, did when they left, did you feel like you were a suspect at that point or did you still think no. you were trying to help? No, they didn't give me any indication of that whatsoever. But the, the weird thing, the one weird note was before they got ready to leave. Well, the, all of it's pretty weird. But, you know, like I said, I was a kid, so I didn't realize how weird it was until hindsight. But even the thing that struck me as weird then 
was right before they're getting ready to leave, Steve Jones pulls out a Polaroid camera and says, would you mind if I take a picture of you? Sure. I don't know why, but okay, go ahead. He takes a picture of me and that was it. He leaves. Uh, I would find out later from other people in the neighborhood, they would say that he had been coming through our neighborhood and showing that Polaroid to people, telling them that I had committed this murder and that or these murders, plural, and that they were doing the same thing to them that they had done to me, saying, if you can come up with anything, if you've heard anything, if you know anything, don't hesitate to come and tell us. Okay. Now, are those the there's a few pictures on the Callahan site. There's one of you that that looks like a Polaroid where you're wearing like a Blazers t-shirt that just has Eccles on it. And then there's that would have probably been the one that Steve Jones took. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the the other two are photos of you uh, looks like in your backyard with your shirt off, one of the front of you and one of the back of you. Did he take those? Uh, No, those were actually taken by my mother and they were part of an entire series. There were you know, front views, back, back views, both side views, you know, all different angles, because it got to the point where they were coming to my house every single day. I mean, the harassment was nonstop. There was not a single day that passed when they weren't at my house. And it got to the point where my parents were even concerned that they were going to do something to me. You know, maybe they're going to take me into the police station and beat me or, or God knows what. So my mom says, take off your shirt, go in the backyard. I'm going to get these pictures of you so that we'll have before and after pictures if they do anything to you. We'll be able to show this is what you look like when you went in the police station. You didn't have any marks or cuts or bruises, you know, no obvious wounds, anything of that nature. And we'll be able to show if they do anything to you, what you look like afterwards. We'll have comparison photos. And, you know, as I'm looking at them, one of the reports I read somewhere, and I think it was Jerry Driver's statement, he had said something along the lines of them taking pictures and you having a pentagram tattooed on your chest and I'm, I'm looking at this picture and there's nothing on your chest at all do you or did you ever have a pentagram tattooed on your chest no i don't i don't recall ever having that you know i have a lot of tattoos i think maybe at one point i did have a small cross um that i covered up with something else no it's actually still there um the, the cross is still there but no that's it uh maybe he was calling and it's not even technically a cross. It's just so old. It looks like a cross. Now it was like a Venus symbol. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a cross with a hoop. Uh, and it's just so old and faded that all you can really see is a cross. Maybe that's what he could have been calling uh, a pentagram. Who, who knows? Driver is or, or was uh, half crazy and half corrupt. So it's really, really hard to you know use logic or reason when you're talking about anything that came out of that guy's mouth. Well, and and so speaking of Driver, he seems, from what I'm finding in the documents, he seems to be the impetus of how they they did get to you, how Steve Jones, because did you have any interaction personally with Steve Jones before this? Uh, I didn't. The only reason I knew who he was, that I knew who Steve Jones was, was because he worked with Driver in our neighborhood. These guys were in our neighborhood all the time, you know, messing with young boys. But one time, myself, Jason, and his younger brother, Matt, We used to go, you know, this was back before the days of computers and Amazon and and stuff like that. So if you want to know what new music came out, you went to Walmart. Mm -hmm. So I remember one day we're at Walmart and we're looking at the, you know, cassettes, records, CDs, what have you. Jason and I are standing there and all of a sudden his little brother like runs around the aisle, but he stooped over real low, almost doubled over. And we're like, what's going on? And he said, it's Steve Jones. He's two aisles over. So Jason says, come on, let's get out of here. So we left. 
That's the first time I've ever even heard of Steve, Steve Jones. All my run-ins have been with Jerry Driver. I started asking, you know, what's what's going on? Who's Steve Jones? Um, come to find out, he had terrorized pretty much every young teenage boy uh, in the neighborhood uh, and was working hand-in-hand with Driver uh, for years, for a long time. Okay, and, and Driver was actually your probation officer. He was, yeah. Um, I was arrested when I was... I can't remember the exact age now. It was was somewhere in the area of 16, maybe 17, something like that. It was a long time ago. But at the time, um, my girlfriend and I, we were in high school together, and uh, her parents had decided we couldn't see each other anymore because they found out we were having sex, which, you know, teenagers having sex, probably not the greatest idea to begin with. But they decided um, that we were never going to be allowed to see each other again. So we came up with this ingenious plan that, well, then we'll just run away. So we ran away and uh, we needed a place to stay. So we passed an abandoned trailer. There was no, it was, you know, completely empty. Nobody lived in it. Tried the door. It was unlocked. Uh, went inside. Um, you know, weren't that hard to find. Of course, they find us. Uh, they carry us into the police station. That's when I meet Jerry Driver for the very first time. He immediately comes in. Uh, first time I've ever seen him. I'm at the police station. I've been arrested for running away from home. He comes in and starts asking me like tons and tons of questions about Satanism and cults and satanic groups in the area. And and he's almost doing it like it's not even questions. He's doing it like he's saying, I know this is going on. I know that it's rampant in your neighborhood and, and I want to know about it. I want you to tell me what's going on and if you're part of it and all this kind of stuff. And honestly, you know, it was, I've never seen anything even remotely like, well, there's no Satanist in West Memphis, Arkansas, especially not hanging out in the trailer parks, but he would do all this weird stuff. Like show me pictures of possums that had been ran over like roadkill, blatantly, obviously roadkill. And he would say, you know, I took pictures of these because I believe they're animal sacrifices being carried out by Satanist. Like, well, why is it a possum with a tire track on it, Ben? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But in his head, he was locked on it and was not letting go. He was on it like a pit bull. Every single thing he saw, everything he heard, in some way or another, always came back to something satanic. And so then later, after you were arrested, he gave a statement to the police. And in the statement, he talks about the fact that he had spoken with you back then. Uh, about the occult and he says that in his statement that you had told him about um there there were some cults and that they were you know nearing the end of their animal sacrifice phase and they were moving on to human sacrifice and that you were na- giving him names of people involved is any of that true no not one single part of that is true in any way shape form or fashion there were no cults in west memphis arkansas you know that's that's all like fairy tales and boogeyman stories and, and everything else. And if it were true, then why did nothing ever come of it? You know, if he's saying there's this huge group of Satanists and they're out to carry all these, carry out all these human sacrifices and whatnot, why did none of that ever happen? Next, he had talked about another experience. And actually, he, he actually this is what he testified to at your trial. He told the story how on two different occasions, how he had seen you and Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly walking through the trailer park together, wearing long robes and staffs, that he'd seen that on a number of occasions. I think what Driver was referring to there 
and this is about as accurate as everything else he says. We did run into him one night, but it wasn't with Jesse Miskelly. It was myself, Jason Baldwin, and another guy named Jason Crosby. And we had just come from a high school football game where after we left, we were walking home. It's late autumn, early winter. So I'm wearing a trench coat, same trench coat I always wore, which is probably what he was calling a robe. But a dog, a dog kept messing with us. Somebody had something that was like a half German shepherd, half mutt that kept following us and barking and coming real close and growling. So we're passing the garbage and somebody is throwing a kitchen table, like a really one of those old 70s kitchen tables that have like, um, you know, the metal legs, things like that. Mm-hmm. The old linoleum countertop. Somebody had thrown one of those in the garbage. I pulled the leg off of this table just in case the dog attacked us. So what I'm guessing is he's calling my trench coat a robe. He's calling an old table leg a staff. Uh, he's calling Jason Crosby, Jesse Miskelly. And as far as I can tell, the the satanic orgy or whatever it was was a high school football game. Okay, so so basically, it's kind of close to reality then. Oh, yeah, just just a hair off, right? <laughs> well, in the first thing that I caught after, because you know, I was shocked as as I started working on this case, and I you know, I talked to Jesse and I've talked to Jason, and I always thought that the three of you guys were were buddies, but I I mean, were were you friends with Jesse Miss Kelly or ever hang out with him? <laughs> I wouldn't really call them friends just because we we didn't really have anything in common. We didn't, you know, hang out, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, he's not hanging out over at my house every day or anything. If I passed him on the street, you know, if he was in our trailer park or, or whatever, I might stop and, you know, exchange a couple words with him or something. Or there used to be a store right at the front of the trailer park where we lived. And if you went into the back of the store, there were like pool tables, video games, stuff like that. So sometimes you know, you don't have anything else to do. You go in there to shoot a, play, a game of pool. Jesse Miskelly's in there. You talk to him for a few minutes, but it's not like we were, you know, hanging out and going to parties together or, or, or anything else. You know, it's not even like there's any, you know, you're talking about someone with an IQ of what was it, 70, 72. So it's not like there's even any in-depth conversations or anything going on. It was just Jason Baldwin was my best friend. Uh, he was pretty much the only person I ever spent any significant amount of time with around that time period uh, other than like family members or what have you uh jesse miskelly he was an acquaintance i wouldn't even really call him a friend he was just somebody that i knew who was and sort of was on the periphery of my life the last thing i want i want to touch on the end you know we've, we've got a lot more to talk about as, as things go on and we've got a long way to go in the case but you know just kind of focusing on today the you know, how we got to you, how, how, you know, through, you know, in my opinion, Jerry driver, um, mm-hmm. you know, you had mentioned that he talked about the, uh, you know, he would show you pictures of animals and talked about animal sacrifice and all that. And then there's, right. uh, there's, there's rumors and things around that for, of course, they've said that you did animal sacrifices, which I know you've said that you didn't. And then there's, there was all, there's also rumors that you had like collected like animal skulls. Is that part true? And if so, what was oh, the yeah. explanation for yeah. that? Uh, I did have a, a collection of animal skulls, and it actually started with, he wasn't my biological father, but I still called him my dad. He's the man whose last name I now have, Jack Eccles. Uh, he's the man who adopted me, my adopted father. But uh, I don't know where he got it from. He brought me the very first one from some work site. He used to do like a lot of construction work, things of that nature. And he found one somewhere where he was working, and he brought it home. And he said, here, I thought you'd like this. Brought it home immediately. You know, of course, I'm a 
mid-teenage boy, I'm thinking, wow, this is the coolest thing since sliced bread. So, uh, you know, I just started going from there, collecting more from there. It's not like I'm out, you know, killing things and taking skulls or, or what have you. It would be, it could be something as small as like uh, mice skulls that you find, you know, in, in fields where mice have been plowed over by, you know, the combines that are plowing the fields, things of that nature. Or, you know, old, old bird skeletons. Or there were things I don't even know what they were. You know, it could have been a, a possum or a raccoon or, or, or God knows what. Just stuff you find, you know, on ditch banks, things of that nature. But they tried to make it sound like I'm out killing things and decapitating them and all this kind of crazy stuff. Uh, and once again, it all comes down to fairy tale business. And so our journey begins. For the next several weeks, I will be retelling the story step by step, document by document, detail by detail of the investigation into the now notorious West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. Michael Bussing is your executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. For designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindor, Frida Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. Make sure you stay in touch with us for our Friday follow-up episode. You can send us emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, or you can ask questions on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. You can also follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, or you can always call our voicemail line 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.